Listener Production. It's been a bit bittersweet because I always imagined my first visit to Australia to be with Julian. That is Stella Assange, wife of imprisoned WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, addressing a rally of a thousand or so people in Sydney earlier this week. Since 2012, Julian Assange has been in some kind of confinement, first in London's Ecuadorian embassy and then in Belmarsh prison since 2019. He's awaiting extradition to the United States on espionage charges. And if he is convicted, he faces a whopping 175-year sentence. His family says that his health is deteriorating by the day. That is the bad news. But the good news is that, according to his wife, his possible release has never been closer. Here she is addressing the National Press Club earlier this week. Julian's life is in the hands of the Australian government. I place hope in Anthony Albanese's will to make it happen. I have to. This is the closest we've ever been to securing Julian's release. So could this be a turning point in the story of Julian Assange? And might it be possible that he comes home to Australia before the year's end? That's coming up in just a bit. But first, here are today's headlines. It is Friday, May 26. I'm joined by Tom Tilley. So there's more big news on the PwC scandal that we did a briefing on yesterday. So the big four accounting firm will stand down all employees involved in the tax scandal from government work. And they're doing that in agreement with the federal government order. So initially it was thought that it was just one senior partner who was involved in sharing the confidential treasury information with corporate clients. But it's since been revealed that dozens of partners knew they'll now be stood down from government work and the government, the federal government's reviewing all work with PwC. This is a grotesque betrayal of trust. There is some furious work going in within government to understand what the legal constraints are on us here. So that's Claire O'Neill. She's the Home Affairs Minister speaking on the ABC. So the fallout continues for PwC from this scandal. Yeah, I mean, we did an episode about this yesterday. I think you you had a bit of a deep dive um, into exactly what's going on here, but also why the implications are so huge. To someone who's missed that episode, just sum it up for us in 60 to 90 seconds, please. Okay. So there was a very senior partner, Peter John Collins. Uh, We found out in January that he'd shared this confidential treasury information about how to um, close some big tax loopholes. It was found out that he had actually then shared that information with some of their other clients, the corporate clients, the big companies who were trying to avoid paying tax here in Australia. Then through an inquiry, we found out that emails had gone around that quite a a few senior people had seen. Um, So that's all come out in the wash now. And we spend, our federal government spends nearly a billion dollars of our taxes on these sort of big consulting firms getting advice from them. Um, That's a huge amount of money and very concerning that that information might have been being misused. So that's why it's really angered the government and a lot of taxpayers. Well, if you were on any kind of social media yesterday or keeping an eye out on the news, you must have seen a massive fire blazing in Sydney. Currently, dozens of firefighters are still there mopping up this morning. Um, This was after a fire engulfed a building next to Central Station last night. For those who don't know Sydney, that building is right next to the biggest train station in the city. Um, And it happened around 4pm our time, which was peak hour. 
there were these huge flames, black smoke um, billowing from from the building and you could hear explosions um, well over a block away as well. At least 50 people have been evacuated from the area. That's what we know so far. I'm pleased to report that there's been no indications of any injuries to any of the um, members of the public. Well, that's very good news coming from Acting Commissioner Jeremy Futrell there, but an investigation currently underway as to how this happened and the scale of it. Yeah, I know this building quite well. I've had friends that have lived there, friends that have had art studios in there. I've been there for lots of parties. So it was a pretty old building, um, big old wooden stairwells right next to a very famous karaoke joint in Sydney called Ding Dong Dang. So yeah, it was pretty scary to see this building go up in flames yesterday. And the New South Wales police officer who tasered the great-grandmother, 95-year-old Claire Nowland, is reportedly very distressed. Senior Constable Christian White is preparing to fight the charges and will be in court on July 5. So body-worn camera footage is set to be an important part of the evidence and the police have seen it already have described it as confronting. Um, The 95-year-old ended up dying on Wednesday, one week after the incident in the aged care centre in Cooma, just south of Canberra. Yeah, and we also did mention yesterday that his charges of causing grievous bodily harm may be upgraded now following her death. Um, It does look like right now homicide investigators are actually looking back through his service record. There needs to be further investigations into um, her cause of death if that upgrade is to happen. Um, Remember, she was the mother of eight, a grandmother of 24 and a great-grandmother of 34, and she was living with dementia and using a walking frame when she was tasered. And the AFP commissioner has, man, he has waded in to the generational wars at a Senate estimates hearing of all places. We learnt too that Gen Z, um, the younger generation, need three times a week praise from their supervisors. Um, The next generation only need three times a year and my generation only need once a year. Good on you, Reese Kershaw. That's him there. (laughs) Top leaders at the Australian Federal Police were before the Senate estimates. They weren't there to discuss generational warfare. They were there to discuss the future shape of their workforce Um, because, you know, the AFP is facing some challenges in in recruitment and and retention of personnel and that's affecting their other forces. Um, He also said something. I thought this was pretty funny. Um, he, he reflected on, on the use of emojis by both older and younger people and he said that he saw some emojis that Gen Z find actually offensive but that his generation is still sending. So a bit of discrepancy mm. there between what's an okay emoji and not between Gen Xs and Gen Zs. What do you think of his comments about um, the different levels of praise required for the different generations? Do you think there's any truth to that or do you think that's something that old people have said about young people for all time? Uh, it sort of feels like something old people have said about young people for a while. I'm not 100% sure where he's getting that information from. Was it a study that he'd referenced? Has there been some research done on this? I don't know. I do know that geriatric millennials, which is us, aka mm. kids born in the 80s, uh, I read a really interesting article about this, are often seen as the glue between those two generations, between Gen X and Gen Z, because they can kind of understand the workplace underneath their Gen X bosses, but they're also very kind of tapped in online, internet savvy, so they get where Gen Z is coming Mm. from, which makes us the most useful people in the world. (laughs) That's not hyperbole. 
Well, demographically, they're one of the biggest groups now as well. But yeah, look, it makes sense that the older generation struggle to understand the younger generation. And there's been so much change because of the internet, which has, you know, had big impacts on our culture. Um, so the sandwich generation us, we need to be paid more, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's the takeaway. Yep. Let's go with that. All right. Um, by the way, if you're loving the briefing, uh, make sure you subscribe. Um, you might have just jumped in to check out this episode, but um, we'd love to have you along for the ride every day. You get the daily headlines, which you've just heard, plus a deep dive on a big story that's making news. So subscribe. Also love you to tell your friends about it. Um, if you're out listening to this, doing you know your morning exercise or having a coffee, Post an Insta story of where you're listening to The Briefing to all your friends. Um, we'd love to grow The Briefing community. I am concerned for him and I continue to say in private what I said publicly as Labor leader and what I've said as Prime Minister, that enough is enough. This needs to be brought to a conclusion. That is Prime Minister Anthony Albanese talking about WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange earlier this month. For the first time, both the Prime Minister and the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, have publicly agreed that Assange has been imprisoned for too long. This is one of the reasons that Assange's supporters are hopeful that his incarceration, which has been ongoing in some form for over a decade now, will soon come to an end. Gabriel Shipton is Julian Assange's brother. He's been relentlessly campaigning for Julian's release. He joins us now on The Briefing. Gabe, welcome to the show. We've heard from Julian's wife, Stella, say that you now have real hope that he'll be free. Where is this hope coming from? Well, it's a sort of a gradual ramping up that we've seen from the Australian government. And it's the Australian government is really the only government that can, um, you know, represent Julian at a diplomatic level, the Australian government have engaged their diplomats in uh, UK High Commissioner Stephen Smith and Kevin Rudd to uh, work on Julian's case. Kevin Rudd raised it with President Biden in his first meeting with him and, you know, a UK High Commissioner went and saw Julian in the prison himself, uh, which is, uh, you know, never happened before. There's never been a UK High Commissioner that has visited a prisoner in, in, in the United Kingdom. There's been this ramping up from the government and this engagement from the diplomatic appointments and also a recognition from the State Department in the United States that through the visit of the Friends of Julian Group, a bipartisan group of politicians, went to see them, uh, Labor, Liberal, Greens, and a representative of the Independents went and saw Carolyn Kennedy, uh, the US ambassador, and it was regarding Julian. The whole visit was regarding Julian's situation. So that's a, a recognition of the State Department that it's a real problem for Australians. Right. So things seem like they're really ticking along. But your brother's been incarcerated for, well, in some form at least, for over a decade now. Why do you think things are, as you say, ramping up now? Well, it's these engagements from from these diplomats uh, with, with the United States government has allowed for a conversation to begin between these parties uh, about how this might come to a close. I don't really deal in hope, you know, we've been fighting this for so long uh, and we're up against such a, such a large adversary. But 
you know, we have the support of the Australian people now, or Julian does, 97% in, in, the, in the last poll. And I think really people here uh, backing Julian is what's going to make the change. And I've got faith that the more people who find out about Julian's situation, uh, the more people will support him and support these charges against him uh, being dropped. There's also uh, quite a bit of a momentum building in the United States. Uh, you know, uh, the New York Times has written to the Garland Department of Justice calling on them to drop the charges. Uh, we have, for the first time last month, seven Congress people, including um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others in the Progressive Caucus, uh, writing to the Garland Department of Justice. So all these firsts are sort of mounting up and, and really uh, it's a, like a, a wave or a tide that, that is building against this prosecution. Do you think it's because the United States has, uh, well, a relatively new president, we've got a relatively new prime minister, or is it just the fact that Julian has been incarcerated for so long that this is happening now? I'm just wondering whether there was something that triggered this turning point. It's thousands and thousands of people's lobbying and hard work. You know, it's a, this is a, a worldwide movement that is fighting for Julian's freedom. It's not just parliamentarians in Australia, which a quarter of them have written to the Department of Justice last month. It's parliamentarians in Mexico, in Brazil. Uh, AMLO, the Mexican president, has consistently been calling out on Biden, uh, as has President Lula. So this growing tide, I, I believe, a growing worldwide tide that exists around this fight to free Julian. And I think, you know, it's gaining a, an amount of uh, momentum that we haven't seen before. And we are feeling that, uh, you know, a resolution is possible uh, now. Gabriel, you said that Julian's condition is deteriorating by the day. Are you able to give us a picture of what condition he's in currently? Well, you know, each day he spends in that prison, his health is deteriorating. He's, um, you know, spends most of his time in a two by three metre cell, you know, around 22 hours a day. In terms of his mental health, he has good and bad days. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, he really struggles to get through the day. Physically, you know, he's being worn down. It's like uh, this whole never-ending process, this threat of imminent extradition is really wearing down his body. And his evidence of that is that he had a stroke, a mini-stroke at the end of 2021. The, the complications from that, episode continue on and you know it's not like he's at home where he can get immediate medical attention you know he's in a maximum security prison if something does happen to him if he does have uh, some sort of episode then it could be hours before anyone attends to him or, or he is noticed so uh, we really really live in fear that that something uh, might happen and, and, and Julian won't make it through this. Julian's got a wife and he's got two small children. Um, he's also got parents, um, yourself and, and Julian's father, John, have been really campaigning in his corner. What has the impact of Julian's incarceration been on yourself and on Julian's family? Well, we're all united fighting for his freedom. Uh, John and Stella, they're supporting him uh, while he's in prison, you know, Stella goes and see him in, in the prison um, one or two times a week um, and, and, and speaks to him on the phone 
uh, quite a bit, so does John. So in that aspect, supporting him to get through this, you know, mentally and giving him that contact with his family, that, that is so precious. You know, his children, I think, are getting to the age now where they are beginning to understand where their father is. Um, one of his children is now six, so they, they understand what a prison is and they understand where their father is. And it gets very difficult for them to to go and, and, and visit him, you know, inside the prison. It's not a pleasant place. And even though they're going to see their father, it is still an ordeal for them. Other than that, we are, we're all focused 100%. We're all united in, in fighting uh, for Julian's freedom. Uh, it's taken over our lives uh, and we, we're all fighting for this full time now. So that's the sort of effect that it's had on our family. Yeah, we, we all, uh, you know, wish the day that this would be over would come soon so we can um, go back to a more simpler, simpler life uh, that we had before Julian uh, was taken into that prison. We spoke a little bit earlier this year to Greg Barnes, who is um, one of the lawyers there with your brother. He was optimistic that Julian was going to be out in the first half of this year. That first half is now coming to an end, but I'm wondering if you if you have any sort of timeline on this. Are you still optimistic that 2023 could be the year that Julian's freed? Yeah, I, I think it, I think we are very close now. Um, you know, we're, we've reached a point which I didn't, I never thought we would be at uh, in, in the campaign to free uh, Julian. Uh, so uh, I think we're very close, and it's really up to the government to keep pushing this with the Biden administration. Uh, you know, with the UK Prime Minister, if this support from the government continues on, then then I believe Julian, uh, you know, will be free uh, this year. And what would it mean to you to have your brother back? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> it's hard to even contemplate now, but um, I just feel for Julian. He, he's the one who's, uh, you know, in prison and just to see him back with his you know, I hang out with these two small kids and they're such little joys, you know, just to see him be able to take them to the park or, or um, you know, just have a coffee with him. Like, it's, uh, that, that'd just be nice. That was Gabriel Shipton there. He's Julian Assange's brother, daring to imagine a life with Julian Assange again. Been saying that things have been ramping up in a positive direction and that even though he doesn't trade in hope... He's hopeful that Julian might be home before the year's end. We'll see what happens. Well, that is it for our show for the week. But, of course, the weekend briefing is ready and coming for you tomorrow with Jam. Who have you got for us, Jamila? I am delighted to let you know that the chat this weekend is with Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. She's a proud Bundjalung Wittable Weeble woman and... She spent the second half of her childhood living away from family and away from country. She was put into foster care forcibly from the age of 11 and she lived with a dozen different foster families until she returned back to her country after she turned 18. She's now finished studies in law and social work. She's doing a PhD and she's determined to tell the stories of First Nations kids in the foster care system. We spoke about that and more, including the upcoming referendum on A Voice to Parliament. This is one for anyone 
who will be casting a vote later this year and who cares about justice for First Nations people. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've, uh, met Vanessa and spoken to her. She's an incredible woman. So looking forward to that chat. Thank you, Jamila. And thank you to all of you for listening to our wee little show. We love having you. A big thanks to all of our producers um, and our editors behind the scenes who make this show happen as well. Couldn't do it without them. Catch you next week. Listener.